The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. And on this podcast, we explore questions that people have been debating for ages. Questions about music. And life. We're songwriters, musicians, music fans. And in the 25 years we've been friends, we've been practitioners of the unanswerable. But today, we'll delve into a new question, and we'll talk to some smart people. And we'll come up with the answer. Okay, Clint. What's today's question? Today's question is, what is the best second album of all time? That's the age-old question. The sophomore slump, the second album syndrome, the sophomore jinx, the follow-up letdown, A band gets years to write and road test songs that make up its first banger record. A debut that, if all goes well, launches your career. But once you have a hit debut, the pressure is on to come up with that second album. And sometimes, usually, the record label wants it fast. But you're still on the road promoting your first album. You're doing press interviews. You're maybe sitting counting your money from your newfound wealth. So I suggest, Clint, that creating a classic on your second album is more impressive a feat than doing it on your first. Yes. The cards are just tremendously stacked against you. Totally agree with that. So this week's question is, what is the best second album of all time? Clint, I've got three nominees. Let's hear it. Led Zeppelin II. Oh, masterpiece. The second album by Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Bonham, and John Paul Jones was recorded between April 1969 and August of that year, much of it across town from where the Beatles were recording Abbey Road. The songs had been written while the band was touring Europe and America in support of the band's debut album. Four tours, actually. It was produced and mixed by Jimmy Page. Led Zeppelin II comes out in October 1969. It features songs like Whole Lot of Love, One of the greatest rock songs of all time. Starting in June 1969, they play that song at every concert they would play from that point forward, usually as their closing number. It was the last song they ever performed with John Bonham. You need What is and what should never be, that's one of my favorite Zeppelin songs. Sam. And if I say to you tomorrow, take my hand, child, come with me. Primarily written by Robert Plant, it features flange vocals and wide-panned stereo guitars. It's really a tale of two songs. Yes. The whispery approach of the verses and the super melodic bass line. And 
And then the B section is just about as great as rock and roll gets. Oh, amazing. And Paige's slide solo across both the A and B sections, just incredible. Incredible. So Clint, you've actually learned these parts. I have. I've learned all of these songs. And what makes what is and what should never be so great for me is that it's using chords that you wouldn't generally find in a rock and roll tune. It's got like what? In the verse, it's got an A13 chord, what which is, is like a it's like a jazz chord. It's an extended chord. It's it's just not a power chord which you're used to hearing in hard rock and rock and roll. The other thing about this song is the ending when it's the two guitars panned hard left and right. It's, it's so rock and roll. It just makes you put your rock hands up in the air and just, you know. People can't see what you're doing, but you've, you've got your pinky and your pointer fingers yeah. up on both hands. It's classic rock radio at its finest. Right. Thank You, another one from Plant, written for his wife at the time, notably featuring John Paul Jones on Hammond, Oregon. Beautiful organ play, without question. Heartbreaker is a showcase of Jimmy Page's amazing guitar playing. Mm Ramble on. Ah, God. This, <laughs> Jesus. What a record. What a record. This is part of Robert Plant's strange dive in the world of Lord of the Rings. Gollum, Mordor... It's so odd. But it's so, so odd, but somehow it works. Oh, God. Just in the darkest depths of Mordor, I met a girl so fair. But Gollum at the evil wall. Interestingly, it was never played live during their main career. Huh. You and I have done this show. We did the show for a series that you and I do called Select Sessions. Yep. When you were learning these songs. Yep. What did you notice about... I'll tell you what, the first thing that about any Zeppelin album is the amount of guitars. It's just a guitar me. There's so many different guitar parts within each song that them playing it live was a completely different song. Right. I mean, just in Ramble On, the acoustic just makes that tune. But then there's great electric guitars. There's just, oh, there's such a layering of guitars. This whole record is a great example of that. Jimmy Page is the only guitar player in the band. But just the amount of hits, I wouldn't call them all hits in the sense of the Billboard Top 100 hits, but the staying power of so many of these songs on this record define Led Zeppelin to this day, right? I mean... They're epic. If it's not the pinnacle of their career, it's darn near close to it. Right. Yeah. You know who's going to have an interesting take on this Zeppelin thing? Who's that? 
The one and only Josh Panda. Oh, he's literally one of the only people on the planet that can actually sing these songs. I, I agree 100%. And he's going to have a unique take on Led Zeppelin 2, which I think is his favorite record of all time. Let's call him. Let's call him. Josh? Gentlemen. You got Rich and Clint on the line. That is great news. What's up, Panda? Let me just first introduce you by saying, Josh, you are an incredible singer-songwriter, electrifying performer, and really one of the only people that Clint and I know on the face of the planet that can actually sing these songs. And so as we're talking about Zeppelin II, we want to ask you what you've learned about these songs from having to learn them and sing them. Well, let me first say, the year is 1999. I'm 14. My mother takes me, randomly takes me to this little, like, junk shop. In the back, they had boxes of records. Uh, and she had a turntable on her big console stereo in her bedroom. I'm flipping through the records. I didn't own any records, but I see Bridge Over Troubled Water, and I've heard of Simon and Garfunkel, and so I picked that up for, like, 79 cents. And then I see Zeppelin II. And at this point in my life, I'm pretty much just listening to, like, Creed, Three Doors Down, <laughs> and just the worst parts of 1999. And I'm like, I think this is supposed to be cool. And the, the, the cover is really cool. So I, I get it. I take them home. <sighs> Changed my life. I would sit wow. in my mom's bedroom on the floor with my headphones on listening to that both of those records really but zeppelin 2 at 14 like a fundamental southern christian boy who's been listening to creed <laughs> it just it changed my life it changed my life it was the most psychedelic experience i'd ever felt and i, I never really looked back so this album means a lot to me i do think it is the best second album of all time okay i mean sure there's some others that you could mention but it's just if you think about what it did to zeppelin's career you know it was their first number one hit it knocked abbey road out of the number one spot it was an incredible album and for me you guys both know i've sang a lot of songs by a lot of people and there is nothing more fun and nothing that feels more at home for me than singing Zeppelin. What's the highlight for you on this record? Can you even name one? When the drums come in on Bring It On Home to me. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, they do the whole slow part with the harmonica. And then Paige comes in with the, with the riff. And then those two snare hits. I can just see me and my best friend Adam Styles and his Infinity J30 waiting for those snare hits and our heads giving ourselves whiplash as we go pop, pop. So good. So good. Chase Close. Josh, thank you for joining us on the age old question. If you don't know Josh, you really ought to, and it's fun to have you on the podcast, Josh. Feeling is mutual. And if anybody actually wants to know what I'm doing, follow me on Instagram, Josh Panda Official. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Panda. Thanks, boys. We'll talk Thanks at you soon. Bye. Is it your favorite Zeppelin record? 
Yeah, I think it is my favorite Zeppelin record. There's just, it's all there. Oh, so that's my first nominee. Uh, good, good start, Richie. <laughs> my second nominee, the band, their album called The Band, released a couple of weeks before Zeppelin Two, actually, huh. and four days after Abbey Road. Hmm. I mean, what a time for music! What a time for music! This album was a follow-up to music from the Big Pink from the previous year. The album features Up on Cripple Creek. It's one of my favorite songs. Clint, you and I played this song live dozens of times. Yes. So fun. It's so fun to play and sing. Slinky and dirty and slow. Yes. Like surprisingly slow and fun. One of the notable things about this song is it's one of the first examples of the clavinet being used with a wah-wah pedal. Mm Mm-hmm which is heard at the end of each chorus. It's a funky instrument. And a few years later, Stevie Wonder plays the most definitive clavinet part, of course, on Superstition. I wonder if he heard that on this track. Hmm. And when we talk about Americana, yeah. the lyrics and the vibe of this song to me provide a sonic definition of that genre, of American music, folk, country, blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. Yeah. And it's always interested me that a band that's mostly Canadian, four of the five guys in the band are from Canada, helped define this genre so completely. Hmm. Okay, another song on this record, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, written by Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm, although Robertson is credited as the writer. It's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. Robertson apparently had the tune in his head for a while, not knowing what to do with it. Then he started imagining a story from the perspective of a Confederate soldier in the final days of the Civil War. Now again, Robbie Robertson is Canadian, but Levon Helm was from Arkansas. He's the only American. So together, they'd go to the library in Woodstock, New York, to research. And one of the people they read about was George Stoneman, a Union general who led raids deep into Confederate-controlled areas to destroy railroad lines and supplies. So the opening lyric... Virgil Kane is a name and I served on the Danville train Till Stoneman's cavalry came Virgil Kane is my name, and I served on the Danville train till Stoneman's cavalry came and tore up the tracks again. Interesting note on George Stoneman. He had gone to West Point, like many of the officers on both sides of the Civil War. In fact, while at West Point, Stoneman was roommates with Stonewall Jackson, who went on to become one of the heroes of the Confederate Army. Just a grim reminder that the leaders on both sides had all come up together. But Stoneman was from New York, Jackson was from Virginia. These roommates from West Point were now adversaries. Now, in 2020, it's strange in some ways to consider a song that's sympathetic to a Confederate point of view. In his review of the song in Rolling Stone in October 69, 
critic Ralph Gleason writes, it's a remarkable song. The rhythmic structure, the voice of Levon, the bass line with the drum accents make it seem impossible that this isn't some traditional handed down from father to son straight from that winter of 1865. It has the ring of truth and the whole aura of authenticity. I think that is the perfect review of the band. I love this song. The timing is funky. It's floaty. It's floaty. There is no... It's hard to find that one. They were just so... First of all, the both of those albums changed the whole game in American music, really. Right. Like, everybody it clapped had, in. People like... I mean... George Harrison. Huge effect. And I think part of that was the instrumentation and... And I think something about the fact that they called themselves the band. Mm-hmm. That it really is a collaboration. Yeah, a And I think one of the reasons that George Harrison goes back to England and ultimately walks out of the Let It Be session is because he's just been in America hanging out with Bob Dylan and the band. And that spirit of collaboration that he witnesses in the Big Pink makes him realize that actually he's getting a raw deal in the Beatles. Interesting. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, so Clint. Yeah. Those are two of mine. Lay one on me. I went through a very big Doors phase Mm. in my life. What era? I was in college. I was experimenting. (laughs) (laughs) As you do in college. I've also done many tributes to the Doors. So I've learned a lot of their songs too. But the Strange Days album had Strange Days, Love Me Two Times. Love Me Two Times, yeah. And then People Are Strange, which is a classic, classic Doors tune. Yes. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down, when you're straight And finally, when the music's over One of the great epic tunes of all time, especially live That song clocks in at like 10 minutes And what year is this? Recorded May through August 1967 Released September 67 what is it about the Doors and this record in particular that resonates with you? It's just the amount of hits that are on one record. Right. What else you got? One of my favorite bands growing up, I'm, I'm a grunge baby. Mm-hmm. So when I was 15, grew my hair out to be like Eddie Vedder because Pearl Jam was the end-all be-all of my life growing up when I was a sophomore, junior in high school. A 10 that that album changed my life entirely hmm. and made me want to become a musician. In fact, the MTV Unplugged of Pearl Jam single-handedly made me a musician. So then I get to college, and Pearl Jam releases Versus, which was an incredible album. A little different than the first one. It had acoustic guitars. It had some keyboards, but still track for track, 
held up for me. Okay. So that is a great second album for me. Talk me through verses. The big ones for me on that album were Daughter. Absolutely love that song so much. Let's listen. Okay. Alone, last breakfast table in an otherwise empty room. A young girl, violins. That is really good. It's an amazing song. And finally, my favorite song of the 90s, the last song on the record is Indifference. And this, this is the song I would play in my dorm room at 3.30 in the morning, quite loud, probably pissing off everyone on the floor, and would just zone out to this tune. It's, there's something about this tune that moves me so deeply. Let's listen to this. I will light the match this morning so I won't be alone Watch a shield silent mm. Mm. Oh, It takes me right back. I can smell the... <laughs> Another record, yeah. Acts as Bold as Love. Interesting. By Hendrix. Yes. Oh, that's a... That's a good one. We should talk about that yeah. one. Oh, man, it's got... Spanish Castle Magic. Wait Until Tomorrow, which I love. Love. Well, I'm standing here freezing inside your golden garden. Little Wing. Which is the most definitive song that he has, really. Castles made of sand. Yep. Down the street, you can hear a scream. You're a disgrace. And she slams the door in a drunken face. And bold is love. Yeah. Anger. He smiles, towering in shiny metallic purple armor. Queen jealousy envy waits behind him. Her fiery green gown sneers at the grassy ground. Blue are the life giving one. And if six was nine. Sing a song. If a song. If six was nine was used in uh, Point Break, that movie. Yeah, with oh, Keanu Reeves yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Patrick oh, Swayze. What a, I am an FBI agent. I mean. That's a great movie. Let's let's just <laughs> I mean, let's just, let's just let's call us call us That is a great movie. All right, oh. whatever you have to say about Keanu, yeah. But Axis Bold is love. Eddie Kramer, Eddie Kramer, engineer who engineers Zeppelin two. So Eddie Kramer associated with two of our nominees. Secret Sauce could be the Maybe Secret he's Sauce. The secret Sauce. Okay. Here's my third pick for best second album of all time. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. 
I find myself playing this album a lot. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack Van's first album, Blowin' Your Mind, comes out in 1967 and includes the song Brown Eyed Girl, which is probably Van's biggest hit. I mean, his debut single is Brown Eyed Girl. Good start, Van. Good start. Hey, where did we go? Days when the rains came. Previous to the release of Brown Eyed Girl, he's in a band called Them, and they had hits with songs like Gloria, Baby Please Don't Go, and Here Comes the Night. Great songs. Great songs. But the album Blow In Your Mind is his debut solo album. His manager, Burt Burns, apparently compiled it and released it without his consent. <laughs> he spends the next year trying to get out of his contract with Burt Burns, who dies in late 67. That story involves organized crime, murder, and it's the subject of a few good podcasts, so I'll leave it at that. But to get away from the mess in New York City, Van and his new wife, Janet Rigsby, who changes her name to Janet Planet. Awesome. They moved to Boston, and he connects with Tom Kilbania. I butchered that guy's name, but he's an upright bass student at Berklee School of Music. They start doing duo shows, and then the bass player invites a jazz flautist. Flautist? Yeah, flautist. Guy who plays the flute. He sits in with them one night, and they become a trio. Over the course of the next four months, they start developing this acoustic folk jazz sound that would become the template for Astro Weeks. Warner Brothers, looking to sign Van Morrison and capitalize on the success of Brown Eyed Girl, sends a producer, Louis Merenstein, up to Boston to check him out. They meet up at a studio in Boston, and Van plays him the song Astral Weeks. Merenstein says, I started crying. It just vibrated my soul, and I knew I wanted to work with that sound. Merenstein replaces Kilbania and Payne and hires a band of musicians who are serious jazz cats. Hmm. Jay Berliner, the guitarist, had played with Charles Mingus. Connie Kay, the drummer, had been part of the modern jazz quartet. Warren Smith, the percussionist, had played with Miles Davis. But for me, the most important ingredient, other than Van himself, is Richard Davis. He's the upright bass player who had played with Miles Davis, Frank Sinatra, Elvin Jones, Sarah Vaughan, and others. It was largely improvised on the part of the band. No charts, no rehearsals. Van plays them the songs on the acoustic guitar, and then they start tracking. And a lot of these songs on the album are first takes. This is a record that influenced some of our favorite singer-songwriters. Bono, Springsteen. One record that had a huge impact on both of us is David Gray's White Ladder. Yes. In an interview earlier this year commemorating the 20th anniversary of White Ladder, the interviewer asked David Gray, For many, White Ladder is a defining album of their life. What's yours? To which David Gray said, No record has given me more pleasure than Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Hmm. That's a record that changed my life and made me listen to music in a different way. It's wild and exuberant and indescribable, and it fascinates me still when I listen to it. Hmm. But back to Richard Davis's bass parts. Can we listen to some of these? Yeah, let's hit it. So here's Astral Weeks. In another time, in another place. Here's Cypress Avenue. Before that 
shine on the hill I may go crazy Here's Slim Slow Slider Slim Slow Slider Horse you ride In white as snow Slim Slow Slider Here's the song Madam George Clicking, clacking of the high heel shoe. Ford and Fitzroy, Madam Joy. And here's the song, Sweet Thing. One final note on Astral Weeks, Clint. Mm-hmm. It was not a commercial success. It's developed a cult following, but following Astral Weeks, Van and his wife moved to Woodstock, and he decides he's going to produce his albums from now on, and he wants to create albums that are more accessible. As he says, I make albums primarily to sell them, and if I get too far out, a lot of people can't relate to it. I had to forget about the artistic thing because it didn't make sense on a practical level. One has to live. I actually really like that. Wow. It's refreshing. I had no idea that's how he felt. So his next album, Clint, called Moon Dance. That comes out in 1970. And it has, and it stoned me, Moon Dance, Crazy Love, Caravan, Into the Mystic, to name a few. That's the album I know. Okay, so Clint, it's also interesting to consider what are some of the worst second albums of all time. I mean, when we talk about how impressive it is to come back from a great debut album with a great sophomore effort, how about the bands that just whiffed on the second album? Do you even know any songs from U2's second album, October? Not a one. Yeah, I looked it up and I still can't tell you any songs. (laughs) Terrence Trent Darby's follow-up album. Remember him? I do. Yeah, I remember his first one. So his debut album... Introducing the hard line according to Terrence Trent Darby, which included songs like Sign Your Name. Yeah. But also had the singles Wishing Well. Yeah. Dance the Little Sister. Uh-huh. People were calling him the next prince. He himself claimed that that record was the most important release since Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> I'm not joking here. But his follow-up album is called Neither Fish Nor Flesh. That comes out two years later. It spent less than four weeks in the charts. Okay. How bad was it? <laughs> he legally changes his name to Sananda Maitreya. <laughs> About the name change, he wrote, Terrence Trent Darby was dead. He watched his suffering as he died a noble death. After intense pain for a new spirit, a new will, and a new identity. He chose that name, he said, because Maitreya means rebirth in Sanskrit. Okay. Only, actually, it turns out it doesn't mean that. (laughs) It means friendly. So, again, folks listening, don't get tattoos of Chinese characters and don't change your name to something in Sanskrit. Oh, man. His second record was so bad that he had had to change his name. It's like he went into the spiritual witness protection program. (laughs) Oh, no. 
Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. I mean, okay. Terrence Trent. Is it Terrence or is it Terrence Trent? It's Terrence. Okay. It's like, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think he went by Lee. Lee. <laughs> well, it's not that bad. It's I mean, not that it's bad. Not... It's not that bad. All right. The police. Okay. The police. Outlandis Demora. Outlandis Demora. This is their first record. First record. Yep. So Lonely. Roxanne, Can't Stand Losing You. Okay. I mean, so that puts them on the map. Yep. Three great songs. Um, next to You. That's that's one. a great one. Yeah. So And so now they got to do the same thing. They got to follow that up. Yep. They come back with Regatta de Blanc, track one, Message in a Bottle. Maybe one of their biggest hits ever. Walking on the moon. The bed's too big without you. Bring on the night. Love that one. Next is synchronicity. Zenyata Mandata. Oh man, they just cranked them out though too. And then synchronicity is not until 83. And that's every breath you take, King of Pain wrapped around your finger. Synchronicity too. I mean, so they did it. They made a great second album. They did. Okay, let's call our old buddy Jeff Simons. Oh yeah, (laughs) he's gonna have some things. He'll have an opinion. Jeff. Yeah. Hey, you got Rich and you got Clint on the line. Hey, hey, back again, and so happy to be here, fellas. Thanks for joining us again on the age-old question. Jeff, this week we're talking about the best second albums of all time. Oh, dude. I mean, this is the kind of nerdy micro-question that I could spend my whole life arguing about. I mean, uh, this, I've this never had a podcast in my head like you guys. This is just <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, I, ha- I picked three. I've got three locked and loaded, but let's hear what you guys what you identified because maybe we have some overlap okay number one we have led zeppelin two boom absolutely it was number two on my list oh nice call okay we also have the band's second record oh good very good i i would argue that the first record's a little better but i can't i mean the band is a fantastic record but i like music for big pink just a tiny bit more and you make a good point we're not we're not saying this is their crowning achievement we're just saying a band or an artist that came back from a stunning debut with a really good okay so then yeah i mean the band records that's unassailable awesome choice we've also talked about axis bold as love yep great we've talked about the doors strange days oh i'm less of a doors guy and also don't you think strange days is like the first album and like, hey, that was a hit. Maybe we should make the whole thing again. Like, when the music's over, is so obviously like the end, but not quite the end. Right. I also think it's hilarious that there's a 14-minute song called "When the Music's Over." <laughs> it's like, do you, do you and it's never over. 
<laughs> we live. Okay, what else? We have uh, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. All right, and I think that's kind of cheating because blowing your mind is like, I mean, isn't there like a whole story around he didn't want it released and like there's like six or seven different versions of it and like was TB sheets on the record or not? I mean, I, yes. I guess you're right. You're, I guess you're technically correct, but I think of Astro Weeks as the debut of his solo career. Like, I feel like them ends, and then he's, like, getting himself out of a crappy contract, and, and uh, Brown Eyed Girl's an accident, but that Astro Weeks is, like, the beginning of, of the career where he has control over the material. Which, which raises a really good point. If that's the case, then Moondance is his actual second record. And, and that is phenomenal. And that's a and and that is incredible. Yeah. Is there a better... I mean, you can make an argument that side one of Moondance is the best side one gate to gate. I, I, think I, I, I think I would go with the Joshua Tree. I think side one of the Joshua Tree is as close to perfect as there is a side one. But uh, yeah. Moondance is in the conversation. It definitely is. That's a, that's a great, great question. And then we've talked about Regatta de Blanc. Oh, I love that record. You know, it's funny. Like That's the one um, most people... I think that's probably the one people know least, and because of that, it, it, it isn't as um, threadbare on the radio, and so you, you still hear songs like, oh, I forgot how weird and awesome this record is. Side 2 is so weird on that record. It's really fun. And I think that takes us through our nominees. So, Okay, yeah. well, I have two. My bronze medal would be Pearl Jam's Versus. Ooh. Oh, we did, we did talk about Versus. We did okay. talk about that. We, we did okay. talk about Versus. And here was my criteria. I only picked, I picked the three that I thought were the best record the band made overall. Yeah. Nice. So I think Zep 2 is the best Zeppelin record. I think yeah. Versus is the best Pearl Jam record. And I, and, and they had to also like, the, the thread for my three were the band made a great first record, but then figured out just exactly what their rocket sauce was and honed it to a fine edge in the second record. Like mm. 10 is a great record. But verses is better. Like nice. it's it's better recorded. The songs are are uh, are, are more uh, unique to Pearl Jam. Like they don't sound like a grunge band anymore. They sound like themselves. Like the switch in drummers makes this huge difference. And I feel like that's true of Zeppelin one and two. Like there aren't those blues ripoff numbers on two in the same right. way that there are on one. Like they let go of some of the cheesiness and invent something. And then my gold, my gold medal record, which you guys didn't mention, is Elvis Costello's This Year's Model, huh. which is, the, the Miami is True is a great record. It's got Allison, it's got Watching the Detectives, but This Year's Model, recorded with the attractions in like an hour and a half, is the most exciting record from the New Wave movement. And I, I would put This Year's Model in my all-time top five, like... That's a record I can play and then play and then play. I mean, it's potato chips. Like, I never, I can listen to it three times in a row and not get tired of it. And it's everything Elvis Costello does well. Like, incredible witty wordplay lyrics, like, terribly um, uh, angry cynicism that really lands and just, just the most underrated rhythm section in rock and roll. Give us a sense of Elvis as a, where he is in his career when he makes this and what is special about this record. Okay, so Elvis's first record is My Aim is True in 1977. Um, and he's a computer programmer who's playing open mic nights. He falls in with Nick Lowe, who's a kind of a British pub rocker. And Nick Lowe pivots into punk and new wave through stiff records. And so Costello gets a, a deal there. So he makes that record and he tours and tours. He needs a touring band. So he hires the attractions and they are very quickly the most exciting live act. So he goes right back into the studio 
with 20 new songs. Boom, they make this year's model. Three months later, boom, they make Armed Forces. Six months after that, boom, they make Get Happy. Elvis Costello releases four full-length records in two and a half years. Wow. Um, and one of which has 20 songs on it and had to be specially grooved because <laughs> the record was 54 minutes long and he didn't want to put out a double record. I mean, he's just a crazy prolific. So this is the point in his career where he's escaping a desk job that he hates. He's uh, People are finally paying attention to the fact that he has talent and he knows like this is his i am not going to throw away my shot record like absolutely right. unquestionably this is his federalist papers to use a, a a reference point that probably everybody knows at this point right like right. that and so it catches him at this you know right before he's famous and right when he's at his hungriest and and sharpest and it's just that's the record to start with if you listen to this year's model and you don't like it there is zero reason to get on the Elvis Costello bandwagon. But if you do like it, honest to God, there's probably another 10 records that you'll love. Good to know. Great stuff. Thank you for joining us again on the age-old question. It's always a highlight for us. Remember, everyone, listen to Jeff's podcast with Tim Plain and Ben Barton. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. It's friggin' great. <laughs> and then Jeff's record drops December 2020. Is that right? That's right. And it includes a track which is just the most naked ripoff of Elvis Costello ever recorded. So <laughs> if you want if you want a little primer for where I steal like most of my good ideas, you can just uh, listen to this record and then you can listen to mine and be like, oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of overlap this week. This is great. I feel like a part of the club. Thanks, guys. Be See well. everybody. So what do you think? Have we turned over any stones here that are revealing? What is the greatest second album of all time? I am going to say, after this conversation, yeah, Led Zeppelin 2. Yeah. Those songs... That are so timeless. They're so, so timeless. Timeless. I still have guitar students who want to learn those songs. And that says something. And for a band that is an iconic force in rock and roll. That album is definitive of their music and of yeah. their canon. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Big time. Ramble On. Whole Lot of Love. Heartbreaker. What is and what should never be. Period. Period. Yeah. A singular vision for where rock and roll needed to go. Yeah. And in that case, it was acoustic driven. A lot of those songs are acoustic. But it's, but it's also... Dirtiest rock and roll of all time. Yeah. I would also say Zeppelin too. Okay. We've done it. We've done it again. We've done it again, folks. Unbelievable. We hope you've enjoyed yourselves as much as we've enjoyed ourselves. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at the age-old question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. 
We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash question and consider becoming a part of our age-old question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age-old questions. Thanks. Thanks.